Good morning. Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we are very thankful to be uh, gathered virtually in your house and among your people. We thank you for this beautiful spring day in your creation. We thank you most of all for this continued season of Easter. When we celebrate the fact that Christ is resurrected from the grave, you are stronger than death and you have won our every battle for us. Uh, Truly, we gather as always to say hallelujah to say thank you, and to say amen. We are mindful of our brothers and sisters around this world who suffer. Uh, So we lift to you now the people of Venezuela, the people of Ethiopia, the people of Yemen, the people of Myanmar. To many of us, those are far away places on a map, but to you, they are your children and they are suffering, so we lift them to you and pray that you may restore their nations and their lands, that you would bring warfare and oppression to an end. Speak to us now, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My sermon text for today is the gospel lesson, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, and my sermon title for this morning is Identifiable Wounds, Identifiable Wounds. The scripture opens up in verse 19, that when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, meaning that original Easter Sunday, only hours after Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear. Their fear is completely understandable in one sense, since they are disciples of a man who has just been executed for reasons of treason and sedition. It stands to reason that they too could be in danger. If Jesus was judged to be threat enough to have him crucified, it seems likely that his followers likewise would be in grave jeopardy. On the other hand, it is Easter Sunday. Christ has been resurrected from the tomb, and even though they haven't seen him yet, at least two of them, namely Peter and John here in this gospel, have been to the tomb and found it empty. There is some tragic and humorous irony in this for our own lives. Think about it, my friends. On the greatest, most auspicious and glorious day of all 4,000 years of recorded salvation history, those who are seemingly closest to God are locked away in a room somewhere due to fear. Clearly, one could say similar things about us today. Christ is risen this second Sunday of Easter, but we still fear not making ends meet financially every month. Christ is risen this Easter season, but we still fear for our children and grandchildren, for our elderly parents and grandparents, for any loved one undergoing a treacherous path or stressful struggle. Christ is risen this season of resurrection power and glorious vindication, and yet we still fear for our physical health, our mental stability, 
our emotional well-being, our psychological balance, particularly during this time of self-isolation and pandemic. Many of us are trapped securely behind ironclad walls of fear, which paralyze our growth, stunt our faith, and inhibit our love. Regardless of whether it's Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, or Pentecost, Sunday, or any other day of the week, 2021, or almost any other year of our life, pandemic or not. Thank God Jesus walks through walls. Thank God he walks through walls at least twice in this text, speaks peace to his disciples at least three times in this text, and breathes his Holy Spirit into them and onto them, giving them the power to forgive or to retain sins. Isn't verse 23 interesting, compelling, profound, unsettling? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Think of how much power is in those words, in that bequeathing. Think of how much power you possess as a disciple of Christ based upon those words. In essence, you have the power to forgive others their sin or to retain it. You have the power to relieve people of their burdens of guilt and shame or to continue to allow them to be overwhelmed and crippled by them. You have the power to free people or not, to uplift people or to keep them down. What if there is someone in your life right now with whom or for whom you are harboring resentment in your heart? holding a grudge, withholding forgiveness, healing, and restoration, maybe maybe for all the right and deserved reasons you feel, and yet that is bumping up against in this text, in the Scripture, in your heart and in your conscience, the fact that Jesus has been crucified for your sins, resurrected for your forgiveness, and now is giving you the same power to forgive others their sins against you as he has forgiven you your sins against him. It is an awkward thing, to say the least, not to offer freely to others what you yourself have freely received. Not to extend grace and mercy to others, undeservedly so, while you have been the undeserved recipient yourself of exactly the same thing. There's a lot of power in this verse that we don't think about much and certainly never talk about. You'd think he would just command us to go out and forgive. Forgive others their sins. But he doesn't. Not here anyway. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He not only gives you a choice in the matter, it's up to you, really, right? But he seems to imply that your choice, pro or con, will have transcendent ramifications and heavenly consequences. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. 
If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It's like your choices here on this level, earth, time, and space affect realities on another level somewhere else. It's kind of like what Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples in another place, Matthew 16 to be exact. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's some power, isn't it? He could have just easily said, right, look, whatever the Bible says, that's it. No further discussion. Black and white, clear cut, unambiguous, clear as day. Just go and read your Bible. But he doesn't. He gives us power. The power of the Holy Spirit to make some decisions, to make some calls. If you bind it on earth, it is bound in heaven. If you decide to loose it on earth, it is loosed in heaven. If you forgive it here, it's forgiven there. If you retain it here, it's retained there. That's a lot of power that we don't think we have. We don't realize we have. And we don't use mostly because it scares us because we're so used to thinking of ourselves as powerless people. I don't call the shots. Shots are called for me. I don't make things happen. Things happen to me. I'm not a victor. I'm a victim. And while all of us have been victimized by unfair circumstances and even abusive situations in our lives, the greatest tragedy and travesty about that is that we let those things forevermore rob us of our agency, our confidence, our belief in ourselves, and the belief that God could use me to determine anything at all, much less heavenly realities. But the Scripture says, if you bind it, it's bound. If you loose it, it's loosed. If you retain it, it's retained. If you forgive it, it's forgiven. Thomas, one of the twelve disciples, gets a bad rap in this story. Popular history has even dubbed him Doubting Thomas for his refusal to believe as if he were somehow the weaker for it. That's unfortunate, in my opinion, for a couple of reasons. Number one, verse 24, <clears throat> indicates that he was not with them when Jesus came the first time. And since the rest of them were locked up behind closed doors for fear, that at least indicates to me that Thomas was the most courageous of the bunch, since he alone was willing to venture outside, unimpeded. And number two, earlier in chapter 11, when Jesus receives news of Lazarus' death, he communicates that he is going to return to Judea, the scene of the death. The rest of his disciples discourage such a return, reminding him that many back there wish to stone him. But Thomas, alone of all the disciples, courageously backs Jesus, saying, let us also go that we might die with him. So rather than coming across in the narrative as weak, fearful, and doubting, Thomas actually appears strong, brave, and courageous. Thomas, here in chapter 20, does what I dare say any of us would do in his shoes. Unless I see it, I'm not believing. The exact same scene repeats itself a week later, seven days later, according to verse number 26. 
In verse 27, Jesus provides the evidence that was lacking and which Thomas demanded back in verse 25. Put your finger here, Jesus invites, and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas replies in stunned wonder in verse 28. And what many consider to be the climax of the whole narrative of this gospel. My Lord and my God. Thomas goes from doubt to belief. And the result of belief, according to the summary purpose of this entire book, found in verse 31, is life in Jesus' name. There is an especially intriguing facet of this story that Perhaps you did not notice. In all the resurrection accounts of Jesus, he goes unrecognized by his own disciples and friends, those who knew him best, until something startling happens. When Mary Magdalene meets the resurrected Christ by the empty tomb earlier in this same chapter, she does not recognize him and supposes him to be the gardener, actually, until he calls her by name, Mary. Likewise, on the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel, Jesus joins two of his disciples on the road and journeys with them an entire day, engaging in conversation completely unrecognizable to them. Until at dinner that night, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then and only then did they recognize their resurrected Lord. Isn't it amazing? That Jesus is transformed enough in his resurrected body as to be unrecognizable to his best friends by sight. Except when he calls their name, God's word, and blesses their meal, God's sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Similarly, herein in verses 19 and 20, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, his wounds. Then, the text says, the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So one possible reading of this text, which would be consistent with the other resurrection narratives, is that the disciples do not initially recognize Jesus when he enters the room and says, peace be with you. Only when he shows them his wounds do they know who he is. And that would also explain why he has to say to them a second time, peace be with you. Because only now do they actually know who he is. Jesus, in other words, is transformed enough in his resurrected body as to be completely unrecognizable to his disciples and friends. And yet the resurrection is not so transformative as to eradicate his wounds. And it is precisely the wounds which identify him to them for who he is. Follow me now. He has been glorified enough to be thoroughly changed. And yet his wounds have not disappeared. And it is precisely the wounds which offer proof that it is indeed he. What if we ourselves, who have now been saved by grace through faith, have been changed enough to be unrecognizable to some of our friends, and yet we still possess our wounds, which enable us to identify with others and have compassion for them. What if we ourselves, 
who have been crucified to sin and raised to new life, who have been blood-bought and blood-cleansed, who have been saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost-filled, and fire-baptized, have been transformed enough as to be unrecognizable to our families, our friends, our associates, and co-workers, and yet we still possess the wounds of our suffering and persecution, of our trials and tribulations, which enable us to reach out to others in a spirit of love, long-suffering, and identification. What if we became more aware of our own wounds and more aware of others' wounds? What if we became less self-conscious of our own wounds and less judgmental of others' wounds? What if we realize that our woundedness is precisely what we have in common with Christ and with other people? What if we believed that God was in the wounds? What if we were a church, not just of word and sacrament, but of word, sacrament, and wounds? Christ's wounds are precisely what identify Him here as Christ. Our wounds are precisely what identify us as Christians. When I understand your pain, and you understand my pain, God is present and revealed. When you forgive someone their sin against you because you understand their wounds, God is present. And revealed. When you realize that what somebody did to you was less about them trying to sabotage and hinder you and more about their own woundedness along their own life's journey, God is present and revealed. When you realize that wounds are often passed down, unfortunately, within families from one generation to another, mostly unintentionally, because all of us hurt. And none of us is equipped to deal with it or remedy it to any effective degree. God begins to be present and God begins to be revealed. We are all hurt. We are all in pain. We are all angry and confused and defensive. We are all struggling mightily to somehow make a way out of no way to see a path through the murkiest of nights. And we are all locked behind closed doors somewhere due to fear. But what if Jesus comes through those doors? What if he breaks down our walls? What if he says to you and to me, peace be with you? What if he breathes on you, breathes on me and says, receive the Holy Spirit? What if he sends us out and forth equipped as the original apostles, giving us the power to forgive or to retain, to free or to oppress, to lift up or to hold down, to encourage or discourage, to assist or to hinder, to give life or to destroy it, to liberate or constrict, to release or to constrain, to loose or to bind. What if he gives us the knowledge that we are both transformed and wounded and that it is our wounds which identify us as followers of him and allow us to identify with others in their pain? What if he did all of that 
according to Scripture, according to this text, he already has. He already has. Identifiable wounds. Amen.